Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke 6, verses 17 through 19, the first in what I hope will be a series of sermons. Uh, if you were to be asked what was the greatest sermon that was ever preached, I think that most uh, commentators, uh, most scholars, most um, of the informed observers would say that the greatest sermon ever preached was the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Uh, what if you were to be asked, uh, what was the second greatest sermon that was ever preached? I believe the correct answer would also be a sermon of Jesus uh, that goes by the name of the Sermon on the Plain. And it may be that before this morning that you had never heard of the Sermon on the Plain. And uh, the reason for that would be that it has been largely overshadowed by its cousin sermon, if we can call it that, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they have together a, 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 a significant portion of shared uh, material, uh, the result of which has been some people have seen Luke's account to be a, a mere uh, condensing of the Sermon on the Mount as it's found uh, in Matthew. Uh, I believe that the general consensus is that these are two separate sermons on separate occasions to separate crowds and uh, with uh, divergence in, in content. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's a common thing for itinerant preachers, which uh, is, is a correct way to describe Jesus' ministry. He's going about from place to place, uh, teaching the same thing often to differing peoples, and he's preaching without notes, something I dare not do, but he's preaching without notes, and so there's going to be uh, repetition but difference. There's going to be nuance. Uh, depending upon uh, the crowd and the kind of reaction he's getting from the crowd and the character of, of the crowd. Uh, our text says there were people that came as far away, 30, 35 miles away from Tyre and Sidon. Well, that's not the, the case in Matthew. And so there's going to be a difference because you have these Gentiles coming from this uh, distant region who are, are part of the congregation that is assembled to hear Jesus preach. Uh, there are some other nuances uh, that we find. Uh, Matthew is quite a bit longer. Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, is, is more of a, of a, of a summary. Um, Matthew will speak, uh, there Jesus speaks of blessed are the poor in spirit, and Luke it just says blessed are the poor. In Matthew it says uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and in Luke it's just blessed are those who hunger and, and, and thirst. So, so there are these, um, these differences that, uh, that we find. What is the point of uh, the Sermon on the Plain, which would also be the point of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is explaining what it means to be a disciple. In Luke, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, immediately preceding our text, Jesus has just called his disciples to be his disciples. And so now he's presenting to them um, the, the core of his, of his uh, teaching, uh, the, a summary of his teaching, what they, are, what they are to believe and how they are to live, what's to be their doctrine and what's to be their ethics. Uh, Thomas Watson says of the Sermon on the Mount, what could also be said of the Sermon on the Plain, that it is the Bible epitomized and a garden of delight. And so what we intend to do in the weeks that follow is to re-preach Jesus' sermon. Now, normally when you preach somebody else's sermon, that's called plagiarism. Uh, 
I want to refer to this as uh, not as uh, plagiarism, but as admiration as we try to flesh out and explain in more detail uh, the meaning and the, and the implications and the application of what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Plain, and we do so with considerable ad, uh, uh, enthusiasm. So let's look at the setting. He came down with them and stood on a level place. In the King James Version, which after all was the version that dominated the English-speaking world for about 450 years, uh, that, uh, that uh, sermon, that level place was translated on a plain. And that's where we get, uh, the, get uh, the, the, the idea of the Sermon on the Plain. It says, he stood in the plain. And so the Sermon on the Plain. And uh, going on, it says, uh, there was a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coasts of Tyre and, 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 and Sidon, gathered there for what purpose? They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Now, we would understand that if, they, if you have an affliction and Jesus is able to heal it, we understand why, why you would go to him in order to be relieved of your suffering. But what's placed first in Luke's description is they came to hear him. And in terms of the overall presentation, where the emphasis lies, in beginning at verse 20 and then on to the end of chapter 6 and then other portions of, of this, uh, which appears in the Sermon on the Mount, appears in chapter 11 and chapter 12 of Luke's gospel, the emphasis is upon the teaching. The focus is, the emphasis is on that they came to hear. So the question I want us to consider this morning is, what was it about Jesus' teaching that drew them? What, what attracted them? What was so compelling about Jesus' uh, preaching and teaching that people came from miles and miles around? And, of course, they didn't take the bus. Uh, they, they, they didn't get there by train. They didn't drive there by car. Uh, undertaking a, a distance of dozens of miles would have been a, a, a rigorous commitment either by walking or riding on the back of, a, of an animal of some sort or another. So there's a high level of motivation here to hear Jesus, to hear his teaching. So what was it about his teaching that people found uh, to be so mo motivational? So let's look at his teaching then. So we go from the setting to his teaching itself. And I want us to consider what he taught in two overlapping categories. Uh, there are, first of all, his ethical ideals, and then secondly, his theological insights. That is, what he had to say about morality and what he had to say about theology. And we want to take them in that order, again, while recognizing that these two categories are overlapping. So let's start with his ethical ideals. In uh, verses uh, 20 uh, through 22, we have what we know as the Beatitudes. Jesus there is identifying true virtue. What is it that God favors? What is it that God blesses? He, he blesses those who are spiritually poor, who hunger and thirst spiritually, who weep for their sins, who are faithful even though they encounter opposition or even persecution. 
Those ideals have been much admired over the century, and they're followed in Luke's gospel with four opposites, woes, in which he describes that the day of justice will come. He promises that the day will come when the oppressors will be suppressed and the oppressed will be liberated from the oppression that has been visited upon him. He describes the great reversal that will come about. As the sermon proceeds, Jesus calls us to love not just our neighbors, but even our enemies. He calls us to do good uh, to those who curse us and to those who hate us and those who mistreat us. He calls us to pray for them. He calls us to turn the other cheek and to give the coat off of our back. We find all of this in verses 27 through 30. He teaches us the golden rule to do to others what we would have them do on our behalf and for our benefit. That's in verse 31. Again, he calls us to do good to our, many, uh, our enemies, uh, to lend and give, expecting nothing in return. And by doing so, he explains in verses 32 through 36 and in verse 38, we will show ourselves to be sons of the true and the living God because he is one who is good and kind um, to those who mistreat him and despise him. And then he underscores his teaching with parables such as the Good Samaritan in chapter 10, defining for us what it means to love and defining for us what it means to be one's neighbor. So he, he presents to us these re remarkable uh, ideals that underscore the, the dignity of human life and the sanctity of marriage and respect for property of others and the importance of honesty and, and truth speaking, all of this powerfully taught and all of which we must say, rings true to us, resonates. There, there is that which is pr profound, even though it's simple, as he explains how things ought to be. He, he presents a compelling picture of what should be characteristic of human life and of human behavior. And then secondly, in terms of his teaching, he provides theological insights spanning the doctrines of God and man and sin and salvation. So he will speak of the creator as one who fashions the lilies. He is the God who has created this beautiful world in, in which we live. He speaks of him as, as the God of providence who feeds the ravens who neither sow nor reap. And he does so that, so that we might learn to trust the provision and protection of God. That's all in chapter 12, verses 22 through 28. He speaks not only of the God of creation and the God of providence, but the God of redemption. Jesus himself embodying his, his, his redemptive work. Chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus speaks of God as one who came, or of himself as one who came to seek and to save the lost. Chapter 15, verse 7, is, he calls, speaks of himself as one who came to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. And he teaches us how to respond to the God who is the creator and the God who governs all and the God who is redeemer by seeking first not 
food and not clothing and not shelter, but seeking first the kingdom of God. Again, found in, in chapter 12 of, of Luke. Chapter 4 in his uh, encounter with the devil in the wilderness, he speaks of God as one who is to be trusted and worshipped and never put to the test. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, we have his instruction on prayer and as he speaks of God as one who is good and gives good gifts and he teaches us to persist in prayer and then provides a model for prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. Chapter 11 of Luke, chapter 6 of Matthew. And again, parables then to illustrate his lessons and clinch his arguments. Uh, the, the parable of the sower to, to emphasize the importance of receiving the word as God's word. The prodigal son is teaching us about the, the, the redemptive love of God for even the wayward and the prodigals. Uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to warn us of the, the certainty of judgment and of hell. Uh, the, the, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the publican to warn us against self-righteousness, the parable of the rich fool to warn us of the dangers of greed. What we see in the Sermon on the Plain and then more, more broadly through uh, Luke's Gospel is Jesus is the consummate teacher, whether he is in public or he is in private. And so when he encounters the sinful woman, he explains that, that, uh, that she loved much because she was forgiven much. The, the encounter with the Gerasene demoniac results in him being clothed and in his right mind. His encounter with the ten lepers results in an example of the one who gave thanks for the gift of God of healing. His encounter with blind Bartimaeus teaches us the importance of persistence the encounter with the rich young ruler of the danger of idolatry, the encounter with Zacchaeus, as we were taught in Sunday school, somewhat, somewhat overstated, you come down because I'm going to your house. He teaches there the importance of seeking after God. And then there's these sharp confrontations with those who are his, his opponents. In other words, what we're talking about is Jesus, as a teacher, compellingly describes both the transcendence and imminence of God and accurately describes and compellingly describes the human condition, the greatness and tragedy of humanity, the reality of hell and the way of salvation. God is both holy judge and his gracious savior. Jesus makes sense of our world a world of abundance as well as scarcity, beauty as well as cruelty, goodness as well as evil. And what we find people saying in response to the teaching of Jesus, as in John's gospel, never did a man speak like this man speaks. It was so, so extraordinary were his words, so compelling was all that he had to say. Luke's gospel uh, we read again that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Uh, they, they were utter, utterly amazed at, at what he had to say. And as a result, uh, then and today, his teaching is so profound that 
When he then begins to speak about his own identity and, and make his claims about who he is, we're in a position where we're ready to believe what he says. When he says he's the son of man and the son of God, when he says he dies, he's going to die a death that will atone for the sin of the world, when he says he gives his life as a ransom for many, when he says that I am the resurrection and the life, when he says I am the bread of life and that he who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. We find what he has taught us about life, about, about humanity and about God. He has taught it with, with such insight and in such a fashion that is compelling that we are ready to believe him when he makes these extraordinary claims about himself. Uh, my own um, experience was as a college student, uh, growing as a Christian, there was a moment for me in, in which reading the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, I was overwhelmed with the sense that this must be the Son of God. And that, that as much as anything, propelled me into the ministry. As, as, I, as, as I became deeply, more deeply, and significantly convinced that this is one whom I could serve for all of my life. Uh, so great an impact was the, the uniqueness and the power of his words. And so the Apostle Paul says of, the, of Jesus' gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation. So I found it to be. So generation after generation found his teaching to be. A friend of mine who happens also to be a chemistry professor by the name of Henry F. Schaefer, Fritz Schaefer, he's uh, one of the great theoretical chemists in the world, uh, cited, one of the most frequently cited scientists and, and the most uh, re uh, rewarded in terms of awards and recognition that is alive today. He's the director of the Graham Purdue Center for Theoretical Chemistry at the University of Georgia. Prior to that, at the University of California, where he is at Berkeley, where he is Graham, where he is a, 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 a professor of chemistry emeritus. He has that status there. He, he, he describes in his most recent holiday newsletter his encounter with Christ. He says, 50 years ago, I was in the fourth of my 18 years as a professor of chemistry at the University of California at Berkeley. I would not have described myself as purposeless. My wife of seven years was both beautiful and highly intelligent, and as a prematurely balding MIT nerd, it was definitely my goal to stay married to her. <laughs> I enjoyed the life of a scientist and had a goal to do great things in science, and there was already some progress on that front. Then Christ came. Now he's citing there a contemporary Christian song in which you find the lyrics, then Christ changed, changing everything. So he says, then Christ came, 
While by no means diminishing the importance of my two prior goals, it wasn't as though I was being called to depart from everything that had preceded. No, I still had these scientific gifts and so forth, and scientific interests and scientific opportunities, and so that's not the way that life changed. So by no means diminishing the importance of my two prior goals, an overarching purpose arrived to know Jesus Christ and to make him known to others. See what he calls it? An overarching purpose that supersedes the other purposes without canceling them. He says that purpose has beamed brightly to this day, being drawn to saving faith in Christ, did not solve all problems, although I may have briefly felt that I would never have another flat tire. Karen and I have experienced one tragedy, three near tragedies, and many challenges, but Jesus has walked with us through the darkest hours. The biggest change that came in my life was that I was given a great, great joy in Jesus. Nothing in life compares to this great, great joy. There, there, there is, there's, there's a tremendous power in the ethics and in the doctrines that Jesus taught. He taught them in a way that is profound and compelling. Then third, so we looked at the setting, we looked at his teaching, and then Luke goes on to describe uh, his, he, the, his healing ministry. He didn't leave us just with words. And I think this is the point. Jesus verified, he confirmed his claims with healings. And so we, re, re, we read in verse 18, of those who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So I think that the way that this uh, functions as uh, the physical healings in Jesus' ministry are pointers to the spiritual realities of which they are a parallel. So he says uh, to the paralytic, so that you might know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up and walk. And so in other words, when I heal you of your spiritual, of your physical paralysis, that's a sign that I can heal you of your spiritual paralysis. I can forgive your sins. I can transform your life. And so it is when he, when he heals uh, the blind of their physical blindness, it's a symbol that he's able to cure us of our spiritual blindness. When he opens the ears of those who are spiritually deaf or physically deaf, it's a sign that he's able to open our spiritually deaf ears. When he heals a hard heart, it's a, it's a, it's a sign that he is able to soften our hearts spiritually. Uh, so that, that's the point. This is the way of confirmation. Now, now that healing ministry had a once-for-all quality to it so that there was this outburst of healing during his earthly ministry and as a way of confirming the authority of his disciples as they then communicated through the writing of the Gospels and the Epistles uh, and, and uh, the book of Revelation that they were his agents of Revelation so that these miracles continued to confirm, but they have vastly slowed since that day. They had this once-for-all 
quality of establishing the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and God the Son, and as the apostles and disciples as his agents of revelation. However, when it speaks of, when it speaks of the power came out from him, that power has continued down to the present day. In that, lives have been transformed. So that Jesus is able to speak of those who believe in him as having been born again. They have, they have a new life. In the, in the language of the Apostle Paul, we are buried with Christ in baptism. We are raised up in newness of life. Our whole life is healed, as it were. We are given a new life. The Apostle Paul uh, also, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, refers to the believer as a new creature or as a new creation. That's how dramatic and how significant and, and how transforming this gospel power is, not so much anymore in healing bodies, though, um, though as we pray prayers of faith, God does hear and God does heal, not in the proportion and, and with the multitude of healings that we see in New Testament times, far more prevalent all through the centuries has been this transforming power to, to take those who are spiritually dead and raise them up to spiritual life so that we become new creations, so that the old passes away and all things become new. That's the ongoing ministry of Jesus, the powerful ministry of transforming human souls, transforming human lives. And at the end of this uh, section of the Sermon on the Plain, uh, Jesus then calls us to consider whether or not we are building our lives on the rock that is his word. This is in verses 46 through 49. He calls us to examine our foundation. Are we building our lives on sand or are we building our lives on the rock that is his word? And he would have us understand we are all building our lives upon some foundation. And so he raises the issue, what would that foundation be? You're building on a foundation. Is it, is, is it on the foundation of your own thoughts and your own ideas? Or is it, is it on the foundation of uh, some other religion, some other sage, some other philosopher, uh, some, some, some other uh, influencer? Is it on the foundation of, of uh, hedonism or uh, on the foundation of Darwin? Or is it on the foundation of Marx or on the foundation of Freud? On what foundation are you building your life? And he's warning us as he does so that there's only one foundation upon which we can build. And so we will want to be asking ourselves again and again as we proceed through uh, this sermon, found here and then again in parts in chapter 11 and chapter 12, are we building our lives upon the rock that is Jesus Christ? We commend to you, and we urge you this morning to bring the people that you work with, bring them to church, bring your neighbors, bring your associates, bring your schoolmates to come and to encounter the Jesus of the Bible, the most compelling purpose, the most person, the most influential person in the history of the world. Now, let me, let me just back that statement up. What year is this? 
It's 2024, isn't it? Why is it 2024? Because we number our years. Who numbers their years? The whole world numbers its years. On the basis of what? Anno, anno Domini. In the year of our Lord. We number our years according to his birth. And it's not just us. It's the whole world that, 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 num that establishes the calendar on the basis of the birth of Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's just one, that's a, just one small example. The, the calendar has been Christianized uh, because of the influence of Jesus. There are approximately 2.6 billion people in the world today that identify themselves as Christians. That's out of a population of 7.8 billion. In other words, Almost exactly one-third of the entire planet of all of humanity identifies themselves as Christians. Now, you're, you're going to be right to say, well, many of those are just nominal Christians. They're just Christian in name. Well, that's not the point. The point is they are Christian in name, that there's some, there's some reason why they are. They do identify themselves as Christian. And it's a mark of the influence of Jesus that, in fact, a third of humanity We've gone from where there was a handful of disciples at the foot of the cross to, to, to today where a, a, a third of the entire human population understands itself to be Christian and identifies as such more so than any other religious identity or, or vocational identity. In, in other words, there are people who want to identify themselves by their nationality or their political ideology or their vocation, uh, but but, but more people embrace Christian, Christianity as their identity than claim any other single identity. It gives us something of the, the feel for the claim that he is the dominant figure of world history. The scholarly Christian historian Jaroslav Pelikan, in his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, affirm the importance of Jesus as a historical figure, saying, regardless of what anyone may think personally or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. There are two anonymous but uh, eloquent statements that affirm the extraordinary influence of Jesus upon life on this planet the first of these is entitled One Solitary Life, which it, it concludes saying, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected our life on earth as much as that one solitary life. The second of these anonymous statements called the incomparable Christ beautifully elaborates on the impact of Jesus' life, a short, a, a, a short section of which let me cite now. It says as following, Jesus never wrote a book, yet all the libraries could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. 
He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun, yet no leader ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot fired. He never practiced medicine, and yet he healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. And let me add one more, the eloquent testimony of missionary and Yale University scholar Kenneth Scott Latourette from the seventh volume of his massive History of the Expansion of Christianity, who said, no life lived on this planet has been so influential in human affairs as has been the life of Jesus Christ. So what are we doing over the next, uh, say, four months? It's going to be a relatively short uh, series of studies. By the way, that we reckon series of studies, which go over for years and years and years. No, this is just going to be about four months. Invite people to come. Grab hold of your classmates. Uh, grab, grab hold of your uh, uh, em employer and employees. Grab hold of your neighbors. Tell them to come and to meet uh, this Jesus of the Bible, this Jesus Christ. This Jesus who spoke as no man ever spoke, who has had such a profound and overwhelming impact on uh, life on this planet. Come and meet him. Come and find out why so many have found his teaching, his life, his ministry, and then his death and burial, resurrection and ascension to be so compelling uh, that above all, they want to be known as Christians. Above all, they want their life to be lived for him, for his honor, for his glory, and, and for the, the spread of his redeeming and liberating uh, gospel message as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, We give thanks, O Lord, for your beloved Son, the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Advocate with the Father, the Righteous and Holy One, the One who is faithful and true. And O Lord, we pray that as we work our way through this Sermon of Jesus, we pray that with the original crowds that we might be astonished at his teaching. And more than that, we pray that we would be transformed by his teaching and that we would feel compelled to cry out with the, the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross, surely this is the Son of God. And bow down before him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.